purpose of the Hatch Act is to avoid, and I just quote now, the pernicious effects of politics. And just to reflect on what you said, once the military gets into this, I couldn't imagine anything more pernicious than the undermining of the oath that we took uh, and the undermining of the trust and confidence of the American people in the armed forces. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. I spoke recently with General Dan Chrisman, a longtime board member of ASPs, to talk about the fraught state of American civil military affairs. After the events in Lafayette Square, he signed a letter saying, the military must never be used to violate constitutional rights. General Chrisman is informed in this by his 35 years in the Army, finishing as the superintendent at West Point. He's also a combat veteran, fighting at the height of the Vietnam War. He said that he came home then to a country divided, and the military suffered because it was seen to have taken sides in that divide. Our conversation ranged through the important historical reasons for the American reluctance to involve the military in domestic affairs, ranging back to the Declaration of Independence. We talked about how military leaders have sometimes broken this trust, most notably one of his predecessors at West Point, General Douglas MacArthur. What I thought was most disturbing, though, was his assertion that today, the threats to bring the American military and politics don't come from the military, but from the commander-in-chief himself. It is the president who seeks to undermine the constitutional split between the military and politics. I hope our discussion enlightens you on one of the most consequential issues for American politics this election year and beyond. Now let's get into the discussion. General Dan Chrisman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Good to be with you virtually, if not in person. Thanks very much. Yeah. Well, you've been a uh, board member here at the American Security Project since our founding. Uh, and we wanted to have you on today to talk about civil military affairs, the role of the military in, po- uh, in politics, and you know, really talk about this question of, of the role of the military in American society. Uh, because of recent events in Lafayette Square and, and elsewhere with the, the protests, I really couldn't think of anybody better to, to come and talk about these issues. I appreciate that, Andrew. Thanks very much. I'm uh, anxious to share some views with you. <laughs> so, you know, your, your last post was as superintendent at West Point, right? And so this is something that I'm sure came up a lot. Uh, when you're educating cadets, educating the next generation of American military leaders. Um, what do you believe the role of the military is in today's society? And, and what did, did you and, and everybody who worked with you try to inculcate with those cadets as they were, you know, learning how to lead, learning how to, to play a role as military officers? Sure, Andrew. Well, I think the, the easiest way to phrase it is that the military's role in today's society is the same that it was in late 18th century society, and that's to execute the national security policies of the United States, which is typically, over these last 240 years or so, typically uh, directed at foreign adversaries. It's not to help resolve or quell domestic disturbances. And that's the purpose of a, of a U.S. armed force, to confront those foreign adversaries, if necessary, with strong and decisive military force. 
Uh, and at West Point, we give the cadets the context of that history. And most importantly, the, the context in terms of the uh, effects here of the Lafayette Square uh, disturbances of the last several weeks is the, is the commissioning oath. It's an oath that, that says, you know, I, the underside, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic. And what's so unique about that oath for America and for armies, for armed forces of Western societies, is that it's not an oath on behalf of a person or of a party, but it's mm -hmm. to the Constitution. And it's that important element of the commissioning oath that sort of drives what uh, West Point has been doing since its founding in 1802, and it's certainly no less relevant today. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point that, you know, in the past, you know, prior to, you know, the founding of, the, of America in 1776, the oaths were to the king, or the oaths were to even the, the general. You know, you think back and, and to the founders, and they had all read Plutarch, right? And, and they had all thought about uh, how democracies end and, and look through at, at the examples of Caesar and, and the, the military leaders who, who brought about the end of, of uh, the Roman Republic. And they, they had those sorts of things at the top of mind. So I, I think it's really important that, that the American military is pledged, as you say, to the Constitution, an idea, a piece of paper, which is pretty uh, remarkable, honestly. Exactly, and, and I think to uh, the great credit of the founders, it was to George Washington that we constantly turn at the, at the military academy. There's this large equestrian statue in front of Washington Hall, mm -hmm. uh, appropriately positioned, because Washington was in so many respects the founder of the academy. He, he kept writing Congress and, and actually kept writing Alexander Hamilton until literally three days before Washington died. Mm. And was talking about the importance of the establishment of a military academy upon a respectable and extensive basis. And it, it, he, he writes this, hoping that Congress would act, that Hamilton would be able to leverage the influence of Washington, and it failed. It was Thomas Jefferson, actually, that ironically, that said, no, this is unconstitutional and, you know, we're all worried about establishing these, uh, these military aristocracies. But it was Jefferson, ultimately, in 1802, that said, uh, yeah, you know, I think Washington was right and signed, and signed the charter. But I think what's incredible about the Washington story is that, you know, he wanted to stay at Mount Vernon, as you well know, after the revolution. Yeah. He was, you know, essentially drafted by the by the convention uh, to come and preside, to be the president of the Constitutional Convention. Mm -hmm. And what it did in Article 2, Section 2, uh, to establish the, the office of the presidency, was to name the president, the commander-in-chief. And, you know, you just like to think in mind, they had George Washington, uh, this person who personified the apolitical leader of the armed forces of a democracy, then of an army and a navy of a democracy. And so we turn at West Point today, I mean, we continually turn to the story of George Washington and this wonderful, uh, this wonderful um, path that the convention uh, traversed to name him the president and to craft the, the uh, constitution in the vision, uh, in the personification in many respects of Washington as the commander 
and and Washington was very self-aware that him as the supreme commander of military forces during the Revolutionary War must remain subordinate to the civil commanders. It must remain subordinate to Congress. Even, you know, you read his letters and he's complaining about Congress all the time. You know, they, they don't give him the food and the, you know, the provisions that he needs for the army. Uh, but he, he always was aware that as a democracy, he wasn't the boss. It was the people who were the boss and their, their elected representatives. And I think that's so important. And, and as you say, he presided over the Constitutional Convention, but he also, he did it in civilian attire, right? He didn't do it as a general. He had resigned his commission and, and that's so important. Yep, exactly right. Of course, there was no such thing uh, in, at the time of the convention as a political party. Those tended to those tended to evolve and to and to cast. I think in even harsher or more important light, starker light, the importance of the apolitical nature uh, of the uniform military that, uh, of course, has matured in those uh, two centuries since. That's right. Yeah. So so since in those two centuries since, you've had various political leaders and political parties trying to to. Um, put on the, the, the role as the champion of the military and trying to, you know, kind of uh, bring the military onto their side. Um, but there's been notable, uh, some notable exceptions, uh, which, which we can get into, but a notable pushback from the uniformed military to that. The military really believes this. As, as you said, they, they don't want to be involved in, in domestic national politics, right? Well, that's exactly right, uh, uh, Andrew. I, I was fortunate as superintendent to have a young uh, cadet named Jim Golby. Uh, he is now a uh, lieutenant colonel, I think about to retire mm -hmm. from NATO headquarters and join a think tank in, in Austin, Texas. But there's, there's a right. stable of these young uh, officers uh, Jim Golby uh, being one, Dan Maurer, a professor at uh, West Point at the same time, who are awfully insightful on this issue mm -hmm. of keeping the military out of politics and what it means if they were to even dip their toe into it. And what Golby has, uh, has written about, uh, he's an extensive, prolific author on this topic. The issue that worries uh, Golby worried me when I was watching the live coverage of the Lafayette Square unfolding is mm -hmm. what happens to that essential trust between the uniform military and the American public if we were to get involved in domestic politics. And Jim Golby talks in, in this wonderful recent article about what could happen if, if this were to occur, if the, if, the, if the military became politicized. And I just wanted to yell out to Jim from a distance Jim, it did happen. It happened in the late 1960s when I was a lieutenant and a captain. And I came with my young wife to Washington, D.C., just after Dr. King was killed uh, in the spring of, uh, of 1968. And that wow. was a horrible time when active duty troops were patrolling Washington, D.C. and Detroit and Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, you can trace the loss of trust and confidence in the military uh, during this period. And it, it took... Andrew, it took a decade and a half, if not two decades, yeah. into the 1980s before that was restored. And we, we have an incredibly high level of trust and confidence now in our uniformed 
military. And I just shuddered when I looked at Lafayette Square and, and thought, oh my goodness, these comments about activating the mm -hmm. um, either the National Guard under federal control or even worse, bringing the 82nd Airborne or the 10th Mountain Division into the city of Washington, D.C. You know, I just said to myself and to the, to the TV screen, please don't do this. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. And, and I think it, it was a near run thing. You know, it, it does sound like in reading the, the reports afterwards, certainly uh, there was pressure on, uh, on the military, on, on the, the leadership, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to, to bring them in. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, in some ways we're, we're condemned to, to repeat the, the 1960s for decades here. Uh, you know, the same fights, the same battles and, and, and everything like that. And, and it's, it's really important that the military hasn't gotten involved in those cultural wars and those cu culture fights over the last decade or two. Because as you say, the U.S. military it, among public institutions is really the last public institution that polls very strongly across part of the partisan divides across everything. You know, there's uniform respect among the American public for that, for the American military. Uh, and if it becomes seen as a tool of partisan politics, then that gets lost. Uh, and, and it's so important that that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, of course, the Hatch Act does not apply to the, to the uniform military. It applies to us to, to the uniform military on active duty through a DOD directive. But if you look at the intro to the Hatch Act, it, it describes, you know, it, it, the rationale for that legislation in 1939. It's interesting yeah. that long from the Constitutional Convention to yeah. ensure the idea that you don't involve the military and the executive branch in partisan politics. But it said the reason, the purpose of the Hatch Act is to avoid, and I just quote now, the pernicious effects of politics. And you know, just to reflect on what you said, once the military gets into this, I couldn't imagine anything more pernicious than the undermining of the oath that we took uh, and the undermining of the trust and confidence of the American people in the armed forces. Yeah, pernicious is right. Pernicious is the, the exact way to put it. You know, and, and with already such a, a relatively small amount of, uh, you know, the, the United States population that serves and is, is, uh, is in the military, um, you know, to, lo to lose that, that respect and, you know, potentially lose recruits and lose, you know, the, the idea that, that you could have people come in there. It, it could drastically affect the readiness and the ability of the future military to be able to, to meet its mission of protecting the United States from all all enemies. There's no question. I mean, when I was commissioned in 65, it was a draft army. Draft has gone away. We don't have that option anymore. It's an all volunteer force. But you're right. Once that, um, once that trust and confidence is lost, uh, one of the most immediate reflections of that uh, on the end strength is uh, the number of young men and women that want to volunteer to serve. Yeah. So, so I, was, I was really interested in uh, the fact that this, the, you know, the, the pictures from Lafayette Square and the reporting that President Trump wanted to bring in the military really has um, almost activated the, the antibodies, you know, that 
uh, there was a huge amount of pushback to that. So, so we had General Mattis, uh, you know, obviously who had been his Secretary of Defense and, and it had kept his own counsel for a year and a half since uh, resigning. He hadn't said word one about anything. Uh, and you had, um, across the board, you had the, the 89 of you uh, who signed, signed a letter saying the military must never be used to violate constitutional rights. You had General Powell, you had, and then, then um, you know, even though General Milley was in that photo op, he then came out and, and made a very forceful statement uh, that he should not have been there. So really interesting and important, I think, that, that you know, it kind of activated those antibodies and, and um, engendered some pushback. It was and remains, in my mind, Andrew, an unbelievable two, two and a half week period because the people, many of those that you just uh, outlined, uh, Jim Madison, Marty Dempsey, yeah. Colin Powell, those that I admire, who I worked for in the case of Powell and promoted me, uh, made such strong statements about the importance of keeping the military out of domestic politics. And, you know, it's the, the, the picture, I mean, as we saw it unfold, of General Milley walking there in uniform, I give him great credit for the fulsome apology that he made several days later at the National Defense University. And as you know, Secretary Esper himself walked back uh, from the statements that he was making to the governors about trying to put the, the, the military to control the battle space right. uh, in, in the city. Uh, and, and good for him for walking that back. Yeah. But you know, Andrew, the important thing on all of this, and, and I, I just, I keep reading the Mattis letter and saying, oh my goodness, I've never read anything like this yeah. from such an effective leader in talking about our commander-in-chief. But the important thing in all of this is that the guardrails held. Yeah. Guardrails held. Uh, as you hinted at in your, in your opening here, there have been other times when those guardrails have been dented in, in, uh, in American mm -hmm. history, American military history. And, and as, I, as I saw Millie walk across the, uh, the park there with the president, I, I know you're you're reading American Caesar there about Douglas MacArthur, but there's yeah. this wonderful story that was told some years ago by at that point some years ago a young army major who was uh, advising the army chief of staff, and this young army major said in his memoirs years later, "I told that son of a bitch not to go down there in uniform," and the young major was Dwight Eisenhower, and the uh -huh. SOB was Douglas MacArthur who went down there in 1932 to confront the Bonus Army marchers. Yep. And George Will did a piece on this in Washington Post a bit ago that described the MacArthur of that day, you know, this bemetaled of tunic World War I hero. What uh, George Will didn't say in the article is that Douglas MacArthur deliberately disobeyed an order from President Hoover not to go into Anacostia and to destroy the Bonus Army camps. And, and of course he did uh, that, that night, Douglas MacArthur disobeyed the order. And it's one of the reasons why not too many months later when FDR came uh, into the presidency, FDR said that Douglas MacArthur is the second most dangerous man in America. The most dangerous being Huey Long, mm -hmm. the assassin's bullet took care of him in terms of demagoguery. But uh, MacArthur persisted and the, his role in involving active duty 
flying officers in his case yeah. as early as 1944 yeah. on the issue of whether Roosevelt was going to run for a fourth term. And of course, in 1951, when, when, when the crisis with Harry Truman occurred, these were real dents to the guardrail. Yeah. Uh, and MacArthur was hoping for some nomination by the Republicans in 52, and he gave this thud of a speech at the, at the convention that year, and, and that was it for, for MacArthur in terms of his politics. But my goodness, Andrew, when you look back, I mean, I, I recall the Truman time, not clearly, but with some memory. Yeah. Uh, and th those were those were serious events. And when you know when I saw the walk across the park, those of us that had some appreciation for that that role that the uniformed military has played in American history just began to perspire uh, yeah. and breathe deeply and say, "Oh, please, please, let's bring this to an end." Yeah. And of course, uh, Douglas MacArthur was a uh, he was a bona fide war hero, one of the great leaders. And, you know, so he had the, the reason he was the most dangerous wasn't just because he wore the uniform. It was because he could, you know, put the, the force of his uh, character and his office behind this idea of pushing for, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to have somebody, a strong man to lead us than somebody who has to rely on democracy. And that, that's always the, the, uh, implied threat of the military is that that we need discipline and and look at what I've done with with these these military and and uh, you know isn't that what what the country needs and it's always kind of you know uh, something that that is tempting to, to people well that's that's right Andrew but yeah. you know what's so unique about what we're going through I mean there are these historical terms but yeah. as I think as one looks back on the banging against the guardrails on civil military relations, uh, the MacArthur uh, case in 51-52, the yeah. revolt of the admirals in 49, you know, yeah. Douglas MacArthur twice. Uh, I mean, even George McClellan, I yeah. don't have a memory of this, <laughs> as you remember. I mean, he ran against Abraham Lincoln. That's uh, right. Or, and, and even as an active duty general had clear political ambitions. Mm -hmm. Historians look back on, I think, each of these cases and say, you know, in, in all these cases, the generals or the admirals were in the wrong. Yeah. The, the civilian authority that's, that's uh, enmeshed in the Constitution and in statute uh, held and it was, it was correctly held. Mm -hmm. But what's so unique, Andrew, about what the Mattis letter and the statements of those that supported it suggest is that we have a basic issue about the ability and competence and even the loyalty of the sitting commander in chief. I mean, if you, if you look at the Mattis letter, I mean, it, it just, it cries out for saying, this is a person who is immature, divisive, an abuser of authority, bizarre behavior, and making a mockery of the Constitution. I can't, I can't ever remember in these other instances, you know, from McClellan forward, exactly. where the, the competence of the commander-in-chief was called into question. And that's what I think makes this particular episode that we're in right now so unique and in many respects so disturbing. Yeah, and that you're right, of course, because, you know, the, the, the baseline idea is putting the military subver subservient to civil power. Um, but if it's the civil power 
you know, the commander and chief that's the one that's that's actually asking for it and wanting it. You know, this is this would be as if, you know, Hoover had ordered MacArthur to go clear those clear those camps and you know get run the tanks through there and 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 everything and and that's that's the big difference and the more dangerous thing to 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 this is that it is the commander in chief trying to enlist the military in his plans in his his uh, you know sort of ideas. Yep. Uh, that's right. That's, uh, I mean, I just I just shake my head. And, and when uh, when I think all of us watched or read these really emotion laden letters uh, and statements, you know, from Mike Mullen in the Air Force and Marty Dempsey in the Army, and uh, Colin Powell was on you know a week or so ago with Jay Tapper, and you could just see the anguish in this wonderful man's voice about what was what was underway now in this tension that we're talking about. I just, you know, I'm just thankful that we have those people still around. And I think as a result, maybe this is more triumph of wish and prayer and hope over reality, but I think it really did force the president to step back. Yeah. Uh, just to see this, this incredible wealth of, uh, of professionalism come forth and, and say what they did at the time that they did. Yeah. 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 You know, I heard somebody say about about the president, about Trump, it, it's he continues to shock, but maybe he doesn't surprise, you know, because anybody who's been watching him since the the campaign and, and throughout his his term here is is that, of course, he revels in his, uh, you know, support from his generals and such like that. And he revels in this idea of being a champion of the military. And of course, he would, would ask them to, to do this if he felt like he was in danger. Yeah. And so it's shocking, of course, but not a surprise. And so I hope, you know, here as we, we run up towards, you know, the ine inevitable politicization of our society over the next several months of a, a presidential election, we're going to have it. Everybody, you know, Everybody gets involved in it. It's you know it, it's the the great American every four year, you know uh, everybody goes crazy. But that's okay. That that's what what we're about. But so long as we keep the guardrails, as you say, and keep the the military separate from that. Right. Well, I think uh, the lessons learned uh, from this are now being written into the programs of instruction, the POIs. In the various military schools, certainly at uh, yeah. certainly at West Point, and yeah. in, in the pre-commissioning courses, but you know we're going to have—I um, uh, don't want to be too downer on this—but we're going to have, a, I think, a challenge here uh, come this fall in yeah. terms of election. I think that's that may well be the next uh, test here. It, yeah. It's going to be close. However, it turns out, it's going to be probably resolved by some court decisions and all. And one just hopes that the the memory of the oath that the officers and the non-commissioned officers uh, took uh, yeah. in terms of where those loyalties lie uh, will uh, will stay vibrant in their mind as this yeah. as once we're on. Well, well, General Chrisman, we always like to end our podcast here with uh, you know the idea that ASP doesn't just react to what's in the headlines today, but we think about what's going to be in the headlines in the future. You know, so what's a headline that that we can hope for and work towards? in five years or so about this topic you know what's a what's something new that that we should be 
pushing towards or working for uh, to get there. Arguably broadening the base in which the, the military ranks are populated. Mm. I think that can, for a professional military force, it's been this way now since the early 70s, mm. a professional military force relies so much upon willing volunteers who are confident they'll be uh, both well uh, taken care of while they're in uniform and serving uh, a noble cause. Mm. And we need to make certain that one of the sins of other professional forces is that the recruiting base uh, and the veteran base doesn't become so narrow. You're right. They're separated from the demos, mm -hmm. from the population, from yep. the democracy that we are constitutionally pledged to serve. Yep. So, you know, I think I, I, have no con I have no fear that in the months and years ahead that, that we won't meet recruiting targets. I mean, we're not going to be absent a major conflict expanding geometrically in the number of soldiers, airmen, sailors, marines that we right. need. But what we do need to make sure is that we have a sufficient representation of the diversity of this nation through all uh, elements of this uh, tremendous society that we are pledged to serve. And I think if I were to sort of put as number one issue right now, it's not so much, you know, do we have the right doctrine or are we getting rid of legacy weapon systems, but what are we doing to ensure that the recruiting base and those in the armed forces reflect this great democracy that we're so privileged and proud to serve? Right. That's a great point and, and, and a great way to wrap it into the, the, the protest movements and everything that we're seeing today is, is yeah, that's right, it, out of many, one, right? E pluribus unum you know, out of the, this diverse nation, you know, we kind of all come together. And, and you're right, we shouldn't have a, a warrior class or something like that, that, yeah. that serves uh, separate from, the, milita from the, the society, but the military is a part of society. That was one of the reasons, evidently, why Thomas Jefferson was uh, so opposed to the, even the thought of a military academy at you know, the end of the, of the 18th century. But uh, yeah. We had, we had too many other commitments to, um, to deal with, and we were relying too much upon folks like, you know, von Steuben and Kosciusko and the yeah. Marquis de Lafayette. We needed our own academy. That's but right. His vision was that this academy would be grounded in the, in the broad democracy that he was so uh, proud to lead in 1802. Well, General Dan Christman, this was a great conversation, really interesting, and, and uh, I learned a lot. Thank you for being with us, and, and thanks for your support to ASP over the years. It's a real honor. ASP is a wonderful organization, and thanks for your leadership. Thanks.